0: We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2 this morning, so let's talk about relationships. Relationships complicate life. They just do. It's just true. They take time. They're often painful. I'm fairly certain that if we took a, a poll of every single person in this room, what we would find is that there's, not so, there's no one in here who's an adult who hasn't in some way been scarred deep down by some sort of relationship. Whether it was a romance that fell apart, whether it was a friend that betrayed you, or just a kid that constantly stresses you out. None of us is free from these kinds of things. Which then makes me ask a question. Why, Why bother with it? Like, do we really need these things? Now, some of you are extroverts, and you're like, of course I need relationships. But let me just pull the rug out from under you and say, I am a strong introvert. I am not so as convinced as you are that we need relationships in our life. Um, I am super content being alone in a chair with a book and some coffee. Like, just letting you know that. Uh, There's a... There's an old Twilight Zone episode, I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with the old Twilight Zone series, uh, about an old man who loved to read, but there was never enough time. And basically what happened is, he found himself uh, in a bank vault right when like nuclear war hit. It's the Twilight Zone, so it's a little weird. And he woke up, and he realized he was the last man on Earth. And so he had all this time, there's no one to be around and there was like nothing, he had nothing but books to read and that was all he could do for basically the rest of his life. And I remember watching that episode and I think it's supposed to be tragic, but I remember thinking like, I get into that, man, that's, I oh, don't know, that's my kind of dick. Anyways, so why even bother with a relationship if it inevitably will scar you or mess you up or hurt you in some way? That brings us to our lesson for today. If you were with us last week, we looked at the opening of Genesis, and we're starting this series going through the opening chapters of Genesis. We looked at the opening of Genesis as this unique hybrid uh, that's sort of both story and poem put together in one, and it sets up this basic idea that the God of the Bible is Lord over everything. He created everything that exists, and he selects a particular creature, mankind, setting them to rule over the whole earth. As we saw, mankind's work as caretaker of the earth is meant to be both productive or fruitful, but also peaceful or restful. This is where we pick up today, starting in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, we read this. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created... In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord formed the man out of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So, Here we see a little bit of a shift uh, in the the way the book itself is written. There's a shift from, like I said, a somewhat more kind of song poetic beginning to the book of Genesis. Now we kind of get into a more straightforward narrative here. Uh, This beginning where there's 10 times in the book of Genesis where we read, these are the generations of so-and-so. The author basically uses this as a way to keep the story moving forward. The author mentions uh, some other things. He gives us little details that let us know when this was probably written down. He tells us that rain had not yet fallen. Uh, This tells us that the story we were reading was probably not written by Adam himself. He clearly has uh, in mind the the rain that he mentions there, uh, Noah's flood, which will come just in a few chapters from now down the road. But the picture here is of Earth being both fertile, but also sort of a mess. It's got a lot of a potential. It's sort of a fixer-upper. Uh, there's, uh, there, we, what we see here is there's amazing potential, but the Earth, the planet itself, had not reached it yet. It needed someone to take it, to work it, and to make it productive. Enter man. So where chapter 1 described man and woman's creation the way everything else in creation is described... Here, the author takes a little more time with it. Speaking, instead of, So instead of God simply speaking them into existence, which is how we see it in chapter 1, here we get a more detailed description. It's almost as though he's zooming in on these particular people. Verse 7, we read this. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So... What this means is that in making humanity, God is seen as not merely speaking Adam into existence, but actually forming him and breathing life into his very body. The imagery here paints the picture of God's delight in making humanity over and above anything else on the earth. The word translated forming here also can mean shaping, and it's often used to describe the work of an artist or a skilled craftsman at their trade. The idea is that, the idea being that humanity is God's masterpiece upon the whole earth. Uh, I have kids, so that means I watch way too many kids' movies at this point in time in my life. And as I read this, I can't help but be reminded of the story of Pinocchio. Uh, For those of you who don't know about Pinocchio, I just watched it recently with my kids. It's a little creepy, just throw that out there. But it begins with Geppetto, uh, crafting this child out of wood, wanting it to look as perfect as he can make it. He wants it to seem as lifelike as possible. And so he doesn't just make the child and then say, I love it, this is good work. But instead, rather the idea, the way it's portrayed, is that the love of this unformed boy is what motivates him to sculpt it the way he does. This is the kind of imagery that the Bible invokes when it describes the creation of you and me. So God doesn't just shape man though, but he actually breathes him into existence. There's an interesting wording here. See, in Genesis, uh, there's a word to describe the spirit of God, which which can also be translated wind, which is ruach. Uh, Here, however, the word is not ruah, meaning wind or spirit. Here, the word is neshema, or breath. These words generally can be used fairly interchangeable, but there's a subtle difference. Why the change here? Why the new word? Well, let me explain. See, the wind is often described as a force of nature. It's wild, it's untamed, you can't control it. Breath, however... Is very much a trait given to humans and animals. It's intentional. You breathe by breathing on something. There's a certain amount of intentionality here. Let me put it this way: when the wind blows over your garbage cans outside, we end. We don't end up uh, accusing the wind of any ill motives, right? Like we don't go, "How could you do this to me?" I just spent. I I just put these out here. Uh, the night before just because I was tired and I didn't want to wake up early in the morning. We don't, we don't accuse the wind of ill motives. However, when a person gives CPR into a dying person so that they can live and breathe so that they can breathe, we don't say, hmm, funny weather we're having here recently, right? Right? We don't think of that as simply being an accident. It has intentionality. So the idea of God breathing into man's lungs, it's literally like him giving CPR and bringing Adam to life. So God, like a master sculptor, forms Adam and breathes on him, bringing him to existence. Then we read this in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. delium and onyx stone are there the name of the second river is gihon it is the one that flowed around the whole land of cush and the name of the third river is the tigris which flows east of assyria and the fourth river is the euphrates if i butchered any of those names sorry so no sooner did is he brought to life that humanity is then put to work so we read that God planted a garden and, plant and put man to work in it. This is a sort of an interesting thing that I got to be honest with you. I never realized until reading at this very time that God literally plants Eden and then puts Adam in there to take care of it. This is also, I believe, a perfect picture of all of life. We see God doing the heavy lifting and then he asks to take care of the of it. So here we see God creating and bringing to life a garden. And then he says, Adam, this is the place I want you to work. But why a garden in Eden? Why start there with civilization? See, one of the things that might escape us that would have been more clear to the original audience here is that Eden functions as a meeting place for God and man. Literally an intersection between earth and heaven. So while God is being described as present everywhere, elsewhere in scriptures, also the Bible points out that God makes himself known, especially in particular locations. So for example, during Israel's time in the wilderness, it was a place called the tabernacle. As they came to their own land, it became the temple. And the temple was a special place. Uh, I like the way one pastor put it. He, com- he compared it uh, with getting like a hot spot on your cell phone reception. So if you've ever been out in the middle of nowhere, wandering around like a maniac, just looking for a place where you could use your phone and find some reception, and you finally hit this one perfect spot, and the signal goes through, and everything can be heard clearly, this is sort of what the idea of these sort of special places like the temple and the tabernacle did in Israel. The temple was a place with perfect reception with God. It was like a meeting point between heaven and earth. Uh, side note, because a couple people have asked me about it, that's actually what our logo is supposed to represent as well. It's these two things coming together, heaven and earth. Uh, I didn't... There's, I have no follow-up to that, but people have asked, so I thought, you know, what the hey? If you want to know what the R means and why it looks all funky, that's why. So the idea is that Eden functions... And as an outdoor temple. Early translations borrowed the language of a king's private park garden park to describe it. The word they used? Paradise. So Eden was a paradise. It was a lush garden that waters the lands around it. And a meeting place between God and man. Ironically, all the things that are often brought up is in the neighboring towns here. Were basically a way of describing the te- would, would have been used in the temple. So the temple was decorated with things like images of plants and fruit. Even the onyx stones that are mentioned here were used to adorn the priest that would enter the temple. Uh, there was go- everything was kind of covered in gold. All these things. And so the whole temple was meant to feel like essentially a return to the Garden of Eden. That's why if you hear these really detailed descriptions in the Bible of what it looked like, and you're like, I'm not going to build the home version of this. That's why it includes those things. The imagery there is of a return to this place where God and man can meet. And then we find in verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. See, the command to not eat a certain tree here, tree here is a bit of foreshadowing for what's to come next chapter. Uh, God places Adam in a beautiful garden, literally a paradise, to care for it and gives him complete freedom with one exception. There is one tree that he is not to eat. This, once again, is a perfect description of how all life really works. Under God's rule, there's immense freedom, tiny restrictions. But here's the funny thing. In life, I believe our tendency is to flip that idea and to think of it as though God gave us only small little freedoms and gave us massive restrictions. But it's actually the opposite that's true. And I believe we do this because we tend to focus heavily on the restrictions God places on our lives and take for granted all the freedoms and the blessings he gives us. So God looks at life from an eternal perspective, and we're far more short-sighted. Guys, I'm just going to be honest. I live my life a quarter of a pizza at a time. Like, God knows the results, okay? He knows, like, you keep this up for, like, a month, two months, you're going to feel like garbage. And so he sees these things. This is the same kind of idea. The person who thinks this way simply can't, who thinks of God as being simply restrictive, and just, a, and just a cruel taskmaster full of rules, can't conceive of all the pain and frustration and long-term effects that come with living a life a certain way. So when God sets re, up uh, restrictions, he does so knowing the long-term effects, not just the immediate pleasure. Now what this means is that when God says to be faithful and give yourself only to your spouse... When people see this is restricting now how could he, how could he limit me so or when God says to be sober minded or when he, or when He tells us to not desire what someone else has, whatever we might find, what we need to understand is that god isn 't holding you back from something he 's not holding you back from something good rather he 's holding you back from something destructive and what we miss is that god 's commands are both protective and liberating we'll look at more of this how this distortion works how how we tend to distort the truth next week Uh, but for now i simply want to point out that god restricts things to benefit our lives not to hold us back from some kind of joy we read then in verse 18 then the lord god said it is not good that the man should be alone so i will make a helper fit for him Closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So the first thing I want you to notice about this is what God says. It is not good that man should be alone. This is also the first time, by the way, guys, in the entire Bible. When God pronounces anything not good. So you go back to Genesis chapter 1. God makes it. It's good. God makes it. It's good. God makes it. It's good. He rests. It's very good. Okay? He does all this. This is the first time we we read there's something not right. Something not the way it's supposed to be. So far, everything's been defined as good or very good. So when God looks at a situation and says, "There's there's something not right there. It should prompt us to listen. So, notice that this statement is also made despite Adam having a healthy relationship with God. There was no sin at this point in time. Nothing to come between Adam and God's relationship. And yet there was still something missing in his life. Something lacking. This shows us that you and I were made for relationships with both God and other people. It's natural and healthy for us to seek out people to share life with. In other words, you weren't meant to live like a monk. You were made to interact with the world and to have people in your life. And so, God starts here with the person you should obviously have the deepest intimacy with. Your deepest human intimacy should be with your spouse. Thankfully, God has a solution for Adam and his loneliness. He says, I will make him a helper fit for him. Pause for a second. Hold it right there. See, we need to talk about what it means when it says that woman is a helper. Because this can get often confused and some people are going to say like, oh, this is just, this is a great example. The Bible has, has disregard for women when it says, sees them this way. It sees them as just a helper. And we think it's meant to be like a derogatory term. Like she's second rate human being. That's not at all what this means. You know who's most frequently described as a helper in the Bible? It's God. God is most frequently described as a helper. Elsewhere, this word is used to convey the idea of military assistance. Speaking of a nation that comes to another nation's rescue in battle. You see, Eve isn't just coming in because Adam doesn't know how to do his laundry or how to wash the dishes here. She literally rescues him from his loneliness. Not only that, but if you look at the command God gave to man, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Things like multiplying and filling the earth would be impossible were it not that God created both man and woman. See, Adam wasn't going to do much multiplying on his own. Eve allows Adam to complete the work God had created for were it not for the appearance of this helper, God would have given Adam a task that he was destined to fail on. Therefore, the work that God has created for mankind can only be accomplished with both sexes, male and female. So God trots out, the story goes, God trots out all the, t- the creatures before Adam, and none of them is a good match. So God goes back to work. He puts Adam under for what appears to be the first surgery. He creates something of the same type of Adam, but yet still still unique and different as well. There's a beautiful moment that this passage brings out as well. I, I, I had never noticed this before this week studying this passage. It's that God actually presents Eve to Adam. She's presented like a father giving his daughter away at her wedding. And Adam likes what he sees. So after a long day of wondering if God was going to have him marry a giraffe or something, he does the only natural, rational thing in this instance. He bursts out and prays. He says, this is at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The idea of flesh and bones occurs frequently in the Bible. It's a way of showing closeness. So in our day and age, we tend to talk about flesh and blood I think, failing on me. Awesome. There we go. <laughs> so we tend to talk about things in flesh and blood here. But in the Bible's time, they tend to talk about flesh and bone. The idea was that there was, uh, there was a closeness there a similar way in which they were knit. And this close bond between the man and the woman is even seen in their names. In Hebrew, the names are Ish for Adam and Isha for Eve, one flowing from the other. The idea is that Eve's name builds on Adam's, just as her work builds on Adam's work. Then the author breaks from the story to give us this statement. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed so don't miss what god is saying here the author's point is to isn't so to subtly tell you to simply move out of your parents basement when you get married though that might be a good idea In ancient times, the whole family would live on the same property. So it's not like he's saying it's time to move out, Adam. That's not even the idea that this culture would have used. His point is to illustrate the idea that there is a separation from an old life and an embracing of a new one that begins. Likewise, the idea of pointing out their nakedness isn't to suggest that the whole world was essentially meant to be one big nudist colony. Rather, it shows us that there is a complete openness here. There's nothing between this man and this woman. And so there's meant to be a complete openness in their relationship, which is what a healthy marriage is supposed to be. This also sets us up for the next part of our story. Unfortunately, as we're going to see next week, This shameless existence doesn't last very long. And it comes between, it it creates a rift between not only Adam and Eve's relationship, but also between Adam and Eve's relationship with God. So what's the point of all this story? Well, I like to summarize my messages here for you in a nice, like, kind of clean, clear statement. Uh, And so here it goes. Here's the big idea. God repairs our loneliness by supplying a companion. This is especially important for husbands and wives to understand. Your spouse is not slowing you down or holding you back in life. You are more effective, more fruitful together. As a matter of fact, husbands and wives bring a new asp- they create a new aspect to the life here. They become a family. It's, it's in this family that both women and men have their greatest influence. It's here that we are most clearly working as the Lord as the earth's caretakers as we create new life, care for those children, and train them to live lives that honor God. Something special we get to see today, which I'm so excited for. One of the, the coolest thing I think we get to see today is that we're gonna see a dad baptizing his own son this morning. I think that's a that's absolutely beautiful, guys. That is a picture, a symbol of what families should be. Husbands and wives leading their children to follow Jesus the way they have as well. So don't miss what the story is teaching us. God is blessing us with companionship. Just look at Proverbs. They're loaded with praises for what the benefit of a good godly wife is and warnings of what a bad one is. So you were not made, we see here, to be alone. You were built for relationships. Now, this is not limited to marriage either. So, the Bible starts with the most important of these human relationships, marriage. So it, makes, so, it makes sense that all the other relationships would follow too. You also need the companionship of friends in your life. You also need people that encourage your faith and people who will call you out on it when you're slipping up. That's what we do as a church. We all need it. Now, this idea of loneliness and help goes even a step further as we go along the Bible. See, Paul the Apostle, in his letter to the Ephesians, says this. He says that this statement we read here refers to Christ and the church as well. Therefore, marriage is meant to be a picture of the gospel. How so? Because the gospel story is this. God, seeing our loneliness... In this, case, in this case, it would be our separation from him, supplies a helper. In this case, Jesus. In this, there is also a separation from an old life and a joining together of a new one that is experienced. Where there is a restored relationship with God and man through faith. Just as Adam gives of himself to create Eve, so God gave of himself his only son to create the church which is often referred to as the Bride of Christ. So what does that mean for you and I? Well, healthy marriages will help point people to Jesus, and the gospel message also informs us what a healthy marriage should look like. It's funny how God makes all that stuff work together, isn't it? It should also give us comfort when we have struggles in our relationships. Even in marriages. See, I take comfort in the fact that the most perfect of marriage that there is, the marriage of Christ and His church, is horribly one-sided. So the moment you think to yourself, I do all the work in the relationship, and they do nothing, just understand, that is nothing compared to the relationship of you and God, okay? You are always, we are always the lazy spouse in this relationship no matter how hard we try. He's the perfect husband, but we are not the perfect bride. Yet still, he promises to, ever, to never leave us nor abandon us. And so what I want you all to take away from this morning is that God made you for relationships. So don't avoid them. You need all kinds of relationships in your life. Don't shy away from them because you like to be alone or because you're scared or because you've been hurt before. As a matter of fact, if there's any place where you should feel comfortable to pursue those relationships, that you should feel safe, it should be here among God's people in the church. And so we see here that God repairs our loneliness by supplying a companion. When it comes to our greatest need, our deepest loneliness, the separation of God and man, he supplies his son, Jesus. So God created Adam and placed him in a paradise. And when Jesus hung on the cross, he told a man hanging next to him, a criminal, Today you will be with me in paradise. All that sin is broken, God has repaired in Jesus. He is the helper we so desperately need. And when we, by faith, trust in him, we are welcomed back by God into paradise. To that I say all glory to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We worship you. God, you are a great helper. You help us in our greatest need. God, you created us to not be alone. And when we were separated from you, you sent your son. You sacrificed of yourself so that we could be restored. God, help us to dwell on the great truths of the gospel this morning. God, help us to see our own faults and failures and be quick to confess them. Help us to not focus too much on the faults of others. Help us to forgive them. And God, most of all, make our relationships, especially in the church, an example of how you love us. God, as we continue in worship this morning, be lifted up, be glorified. We love you. Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper, help us to remember that this is the great sacrifice. This is the peace of yourself that you gave, your own Son, so that we might know you. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.